You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with um, Andy McAfee, who is um, the co-director of the Initiative on the Digital Economy at MIT, and also principal research scientist at the, at the Sloan School, also at MIT, and also the author of, of quite a few books. You, you co-authored this trilogy with Eric Benholfsen. The Machine Trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Did you intend for it to be a trilogy when you first started out? No. We intended it for it to be a, a pamphlet when we started out. It's a weird journey. Yeah. And I've got two of them right here. One, one is called The Second Machine Age. And then there's this one, of course, which I think is very well known. It's called The Machine Platform Crowd, which I've been recommending my students read for many years. And then there is The Race Against the Machine, a couple that you've written individually, Enterprise 2.0 and More From Less, which I can't seem to find. And this most recent book, which is called The Geek Way, The Radical Mindset That Drives Extraordinary Results. Welcome, Andy. Greg, it's a pleasure to be here. And and thanks for pimping just about all my books so far. <laughs> well, you know, I'm wondering this trajectory that you've been on is, I wonder if this is a trajectory that kind of all of us go through, <laughs> you know, like when older scholars say to younger scholars, like, okay, you're going to follow this path. And, and the path- Greg, it hurts to be described as an older scholar. I get that, that just, that didn't land really well. I just want you to know that at the start here, even though it's accurate. Experienced. Let's call it experienced. Okay. Now we're good. But it's this shift from understanding the importance of technology and incentives of the kind of explicit kind towards a greater appreciation of culture, right? I've seen this trajectory happen a lot, but I think what you're doing, which, which I find particularly interesting, is that you are leaning heavily into the disciplines of behavioral economics, of evolutionary psychology, of, of cultural evolution. And I think it's a long overdue. I've been incorporating a lot of this stuff into my teaching o- over the years, but th- there's remarkably few books by business academics that are so explicit in their explorations of anthropology and culture <laughs> and, and, and so forth. So, I mean, do you think that your book is the beginning of a big new Cambrian explosion of new syntheses between these different disciplines? That would be way too arrogant a thing to even hope, but let me try to tone that down a little bit. And if you had told me 10 years ago, probably even five years ago, that I would write a book about organizational culture, I probably would have laughed in your face if I didn't get violent because I, I was just so resistant to the idea. And I want to be clear, there's been some amazingly good work done on organizational culture. I cite Amy Edmondson in the book, who's a former colleague of mine at Harvard, does beautiful work on psychological safety. I talk about a wonderful now deceased scholar named Chris Argerus, who Amy and I both knew. There's been some fantastic work done, but in general, a lot of it was, I don't know, like virtue signaling or scolding on the part of people who wanted you to run a company differently. Or there were a ton of CEOs who would write their autobiography or autohagiography, which is the study of the saints, about how they overcame all their obstacles and really led the company to true north. I just, I wasn't getting a lot out of that literature. And so I had absolutely no desire to read more of it, let alone contribute to it. And then a couple things happened. I started to become convinced that there were a set of companies that were running themselves fundamentally differently. And that was a huge part of their success. And the best label to hang on that is culture. The other thing is what you just highlighted, which is that over, especially over the 21st century, this discipline has coalesced out of a bunch of different fields. It goes by a, a few different labels. I'm going to use the label cultural evolution. And it makes all these concepts that I used to get annoyed at because I found them so squishy and hand wavy. It makes them incredibly solid and rigorous and goes and tests them in the best tradition of science. And cultural evolution, I'm going to paraphrase a bunch, but it starts from this observation about us human beings. And it says, wait a minute, why are we the only species on the planet that launches spaceships? Nothing else is even close. There's sci-fi about the planet of the apes and stuff like that. But it's sci-fi. We don't honestly expect the chimpanzees to launch anything anytime soon. Or the ants or the wasps or the bees or the social insects. And you're like, wait a minute. 
What is it that allows us to do this thing unique on the planet? And the obvious first answer is we're really smart. And, and we are in some ways, but that's actually turns out to be a terrible answer for reasons that I go into. The better answer is that we human beings, this weird species, we have two superpowers. One of them is that we come together and we cooperate intensely with large numbers of individuals who we are not related to, who are not our kin. A beehive is one big family. An ant colony is one big family. A company is absolutely not. So that's one, that we're absolutely unique on the planet for that. The other one is that we evolve our cultures much more rapidly than any other species on the planet. Chimpanzees have cultures, but I quote Steve Stewart Williams, who's this fantastic psychologist, wrote a great book that launched me on this journey called The Ape That Understood the Universe. And he nails it. He says, 10,000 years ago, the pinnacle of chimpanzee culture was sticking a twig into a termite mound to try to get termites out. Today, the pinnacle of, of chimpanzee culture is sticking a twig into a termite mound to try to get termites. The, the, the culture is there, but it doesn't evolve. Ours absolutely do. And so for me, the discipline of cultural evolution is saying, okay, what is it? How, how, what is it that allows us to come together, to cooperate intensely in large, large numbers, and to get smarter, to evolve our cultures so quickly? And answers to those questions are really, I think, really, really relevant to this hard problem of running a company, running an organization. Because to reframe your goal as somebody involved in running a company, your job is to accelerate the cultural evolution of that company in the directions that you want. Do you want to become more profitable? Do you want to become more innovative? Do you want to become better at execution? Those are all just different flavors to me of evolving the culture of your organization. So we have a discipline that studies how we human beings do that. And to the extent that there was kind of an intellectual eureka in, in my book, in the geek way, it was saying, wait a minute, let's go pilfer from that discipline and bring it into organizational studies. And Greg, like you said at the start, I haven't come across a ton of work in business studies that takes this concept of evolution seriously and takes the thing that we've, the, the way that our species has evolved, that takes that as a very useful, very helpful starting point. So that's what I'm trying to do. I think, uh, although you didn't do it, I think what you're doing is you're drawing on some of the insights that you made in Machine Platform Crowd, right? Particularly when you talked about theory of the firm, right? So I remember when you said that in the tech world, the, the only economist <laughs> that people are always referencing is Ronald Coase, right? And Ronald Coase was all about explaining why firms exist. And, and I think if, if you were to map that over to the geek way, the firm organization allows you to create a culture from top down, right? In ways that don't necessarily evolve spontaneously, right? You talk about how leaders need to be consciously steering the culture from, from day one and, and not allowing the, the culture to just sort of evolve on its own. If we think of it that way, then is corporate culture kind of a tool for enabling multi-level selection, right? You know, allowing the, these, these organizations to suppress the individual level selection in the service of the interests of the organization. Yeah, but you just opened three or four different very, very big cans of worms, which I hope we, we get to talk about. One of the passages from books that I read that I quote the most often comes from Joe Henrich, an anthropologist at Harvard, who's one of the, the main figures in this discipline of cultural evolution. And he wrote this wonderful book called The Secret of Our Success, where he lays out at length the argument that I just gave. What is it that allows human beings to be so extraordinarily successful on the planet? And one of the things he says somewhere in the book that I put in the conclusion and that I go back to over and over is he, I'm going to butcher the quote, but he says, history suggests that all pro-social organizations, all cooperative organizations, eventually decay and fall apart because of self-interest. In other words, the overall goals of the organization are not always or not necessarily aligned with what the individuals who make up the organization want. And that misalignment leads to coalitions being formed. It leads to politics and turf battles and these internal differences. And Henrik says, those internal differences uh, become so big and so bad that they cause an organization to splinter. Think about churches splintering, or they cause a company to lose its mojo and go out of business. So there's this deep, if we use Michael Jensen's term, there's a principal agent problem going on 
all the time, not just between the shareholders and the CEO who might want a private jet, but between the overall goals of the organization and the goals of the people who make up that organization. And losing sight of that is a very bad idea. And I think part of the reason the geek way works is not that they've solved that problem and they haven't taken that module out of our brains, the self-interest module, that's all of our brain. But what they've done is they found ways to channel our urges and try to remove some of the most common ways that organizations have these internal factions and they splinter apart and replace them with more coherence over time. I don't think that the geeks have discovered the fountain of youth or or eternal life when it comes to organizations. They found ways to at least slow down that that coalition, that schisming process that Henrik talks about in this, we can call it a principal agent this constant principal agent problem if we're using economics language. Yeah. And the idea though, is that culture doesn't change people. I always liken the insight here to the ones that Adam Smith and Alexander Hamilton made, right? So Adam Smith says that, you know, the butcher's not making the meat because he's concerned about your interest. And Alexander Hamilton says that you're never going to create a bunch of angel politicians. Is organizational design primarily about accepting the fact that people are people, right? You know, you talk about this homo socialist, people are homo socialist, they're homo economicus, they're, they're all of these things, but you, you can't change them. So you got to figure out a way to harness them for better or for worse. Completely. And we are the most cooperative species on the planet, which means we, we subsume our individual desires for some periods of time, for some purposes, you know, raising somebody else's barn does not keep your hay dry. It just doesn't. So we are deeply cooperative, but at the same time, we're like every other living thing on the planet. We are inherently deeply self-interested. We want to get our barn raised at some point in the future. And the eureka moment for the evolution of humanity is the idea that, wait a minute, if I go raise your barn this month and I need a new barn next year, you and a bunch of other people, I have confidence, I have faith that you and a bunch of other people are going to remember this obligation. You're going to show up next year and help me raise my barn. And that reciprocal altruism is a thing that human beings have and that we've really kind of turbocharged. It's the niche that our species occupies, and it's an incredibly powerful niche. And I want to emphasize something you said earlier. Every organization has a culture. Every company in the world has a very rich corporate culture because when human beings get together, culture is what results. That's not the same thing as saying it's the culture that the shareholders in the company want, that the CEO of the company wants, that your immediate boss wants. But if you have a lousy corporate culture, you got no one else to blame but yourself, right? If you're running a company, you are responsible for more hours out of the week than your people spend sleeping in most cases. You've got them working, you know, let's call it eight-ish hours a day, 44-ish, 40-ish hours a week. You've got hard incentives. You got that lined up. You're in control of many aspects of the social environment, and you have the ability to influence them in, in all kinds of different ways. You got no excuse for having a lousy corporate culture. I quote Darmesh Shaw in the book, who's one of the co-founders of HubSpot, an amazing company based out here in Massachusetts. And he says to his fellow founders and CEOs, he goes, look, you're going to have a culture. You might as well have one that you love. And the reason I got intrigued and decided to write about culture and write about this flavor of culture that I call the geek way is not that they've perfected it, but they've, I think they've upgraded the standard culture of an industrial era organization and they get better results and happier people as a result. Well, I, I think you, you've suggested that a lot of the people who are advocates of this geek way, they, they think of this as a, a fountain of youth. In other words, they think that there is a natural progression away from this mindset towards sort of a sclerotic mindset, right? That there's like a day one company and day two company to use the language of Jeff Bezos. But is it that? I mean, when Ardris talks about the type one organization, is that adaptive in certain environments? I mean, is it more, okay, the, the type one organization is adaptive in the, the industrial world and this alternative organizational form and this alternative culture is adaptive in a more rapidly changing environment? Is it context dependent? Greg, I don't know. And my problem is that I don't think so. In other words, I think the geek way is a flat upgrade. And I realize that's a huge statement and I'm nervous about it. 
Because if the instant you believe you've discovered the universal best answer, better answer, everything, you're probably wrong, right? So I'm trying to be humble about that. But let me defend my argument that it's a flat, better solution. Every company that I'm aware of has to run projects, big efforts, somewhat complicated efforts. Now, the big complicated effort that you're run, that you're trying to succeed with if you're uh, Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan is really different than the one if you're running Walmart, really different than the one if you're running Domino's Pizza. Those are very different organizations. Their projects, the things that they try to embark on are different. They all want to succeed with them and they're all fairly complicated efforts. Every one of those organizations wants to increase its batting average or its uh, slugging percentage for important decisions and for predictions that they've got to get right. They all just want to have a higher batting average of being correct. And they probably all want to tap into the abilities and the aspirations of the people that work at the company. The people are not automatons who are just there to execute. You want to harness their energy and their good ideas. I think those things probably apply to most, if not all, companies around the world. The, the case that I try to lay out in the geek way is that the geeks have experimented and iterated their way into a better way to do those kinds of things, a better way to run a big, complicated effort. And, and I, I'll defend that one all day long. A way to increase your, your slugging percentage, your batting average for making important decisions and making accurate predictions, and a better way to tap into the intellects and the abilities of the people that work in the organization. I think it's better. And if you took the business geeks of today and you put them in a time machine, you took them back to 1960, they would still go found companies that beat up the incumbents of 1960. Now, I think that difference is even more stark as we sit here in early 2024 because the technology landscape is changing so quickly and things are much more dynamic than they were in 1960. I think that if we put the geeks in that time machine, I think they'd still start mopping up in 1960. Well, look, if, if somebody read a press release, a summary of the book right, and the characteristics of a, a geek organization, I think they would think, oh, I know a company that is a perfect representation of that. And it's called FDX. And I know that the book was probably written before <laughs> the collapse of FDX. And thank God I didn't include crypto examples. Wow. I dodged that bullet, right? Right. Obviously these things can be taken to an extreme. So how do we know what the correct balance is? I mean, people talk about companies, quote, growing up, right? And which presumably means putting in place structures, putting in place bureaucracies, putting in place systems, right? Where you can rinse, wash, repeat. What are the trade-offs? I mean, look, you're, as an economist, we, we love trade-offs, right? So we have to figure out what are the boundary conditions? How do we say maybe the, the geek way has some costs as well as benefits? Yeah. So let me start with the rephrasing and then let me try to dive into this unbelievably important question. Uh, I'm saying that the geek way is a better way. What I'm trying pretty hard not to say, and thank you for catching me out on this, is it is a recipe for success. It, if you follow this, you will be the next knockout business success. I don't think that's true for a minute. You can pursue a, uh, an idea that you believe in wholeheartedly, and the world turns out not to go in that direction. You can get the technology wrong. There are probably some very geeky companies pursuing, I don't know, you know like nuclear fusion or quantum computing right now. The technology they're doubling down on might not pan out. They're just not going to succeed that way. Uh, crypto, uh, le let's leave aside the fraud for a second. A lot of people believe very deeply that we we're going to decentralize finance and organizations and all these things. We haven't yet. I don't think we're going to, but you could have the geekiest, the, the, the crypto company that followed the geek way with great fidelity, and they would still be caught in the drawdown that's happened in crypto over the past year or so, right? Now, let's talk about- That would be like Coinbase. Co Coinbase is still around, right? And then I talk about them. They're a fairly geeky company in some ways, uh, to the extent that there are going to be organizations standing in crypto. Let's say that probably is going to happen. Coinbase looks like a pretty good candidate right now. Uh, because they did a couple of things that you just very intelligently highlighted. I talk a lot in the book about the dangers and the evils of encroaching bureaucracy and how it leads to sclerosis. I talk a lot about the need to iterate more and plan less. Absolutely. You bring up something fundamental, which is that there is a minimum level of bureaucracy that has to exist in any grown-up organization, any viable organization. There's a minimum viable planning that has to take place on any big, complicated 
effort. You need some structure. I believe you need some hierarchy. This amorphous, you know, holacracy blob really didn't work very well. The geeks are trying to identify what that minimum is and not go past that. But for example, Coinbase has said to governments around the world and said to all of its customers, we are going to follow know your customer legislation, anti-money laundering legislation. You don't have to worry that the SEC is going to come knocking on your door if you do your crypto business with us. Turns out that's a really, really smart thing to do. Also, because of those internal controls, they weren't as subject to the Binance, FTX kinds of nonsense that went on. Because I would say those were not super geeky companies because they were so amenable to fraud. And maybe even more importantly, if you look at SBF, he did not listen to his lieutenants or his colleagues trying to highlight that things were wrong, uh, going very badly wrong, didn't have minimal internal controls. This was not a grown-up company. And SBF took the very ungeeky approach of ignoring all of that. So I don't want to, I would never say that the FTX is a poster child for following the geek way and bad things happened anyway. I'd say in critically important ways, they didn't do the minimum you need to do to have a, a viable company, uh, geeky or otherwise. So look, you, you, so you highlight these four, four characteristics, right? Speed, openness, science, and ownership. And I think you could have cut this beast in a bunch of different ways because these concepts are all overlapping. But I want to talk about this whole idea of slaughtering the hippos because I talk a lot about this and having an, an organization that is really driven by by science using A-B tests and deferring to the answer that's most likely to be correct as opposed to deferring to the person who has the, the greatest amount of power. Now, look, this seems fairly obvious, right? If you're trying to discover truth in, in the world of science, then you use a scientific method. So why has it been so difficult for... Why is it so hard, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, we, you know, we teach this stuff in business school and everybody nods their head and then they go out into the organizations and they realize that they can't do it. They can't just, you know, walk into their boss's office and say, well, here's the evidence, here's the data. They encounter this hippo thing everywhere. I have a friend who worked for one of these outposts, like a traditional mainstream industrial company that set up one of these outposts in Silicon Valley. And he graduated from with his MBA from Berkeley and he's doing all this cool stuff. And then they had a big all hands back at headquarters and he ran into one of the big executives and just started talking to him like as an equal. And of course the thing got fired because, you know, that organization had no time for that kind of lack of deference. Why is it so hard? Because being a hippo is natural and easy and pleasant and fun. And being a scientist is none of those things. Let me try to explain what I mean. Uh, a, a hippo, and I use this acronym in the book. It's, I didn't come up with it. I wish I had. But a hippo is short for highest paid person's opinion. In other words, decision-making by hippo is decision-making based on the opinion, the intuition, the experience, the judgment, the gut of the, you know, the higher person, the dominant person in the group. So that's what a hippo is. And the thing to keep in mind about hippos is true for all of us is that we are chronically overconfident. We are designed by evolution to be overconfident. In other words, our brains, we think of them as truth-seeking devices. They're not. They're social fitting in devices. That's why we're such a social species. And a great way to fit in and a great way to become prominent or to become valued in your group is to appear confident all the time. We're drawn to confident people. We're not drawn to people who are second-guessing themselves in public ways. Or, Gosh, I don't know. Where should we go forage today? Yeah, I'll, I'll go follow this guy over here. He really, he really looks like he knows where the yummy tubers are to be found. So we're chronically overconfident by design. Educating ourselves out of that. It's possible you can learn to temper your overconfidence. I think it's about as hard as learning not to desire calorie-rich foods. It's just wired that deeply by evolution. So start with that. Then the last thing the hippo wants to do, as your friend found out, unfortunately, is be challenged by someone lower down on the status hierarchy. A lot of people react very poorly to that. Or not follow their gut. They're confident in what their gut told them. That's the job of their gut, right? And so you're going to present me some evidence that doesn't line up with my gut? And this is an easy call for me to make. Take that nonsense out of here. I'm the hippo. I got a big gut. We're going to go follow me. All of that is natural and very deeply embedded. Now, 
when I talk about a scientist, and the reason I'm drawing a really sharp distinction comes out of this wonderful book that I read when I was researching the geek way. The book is called The Knowledge Machine. And it finally, for me, nails the question of what is the scientific method and why does it work so well? Written by a philosopher named Michael Strevens. You know, there's this endless debate about what is the scientific method and what is science. It just goes on for centuries. To me, Strevens nailed it because he said, science is an argument. You and I disagree about the nature of reality, what, you know, how the universe works. We just disagree. Um, science is an acknowledgement of that disagreement and that it's continuous. We're still arguing about aspects of the theory of evolution, right? It goes on forever, but there's a ground rule. And the ground rule for science is if you believe A and I believe B, we are not going to settle that argument based on who's got the Nobel Prize, who's got the charisma, who's got, who works at the fancier university, who's a senior faculty member, all these very tempting things. We're going to settle it based on evidence. In other words, you believe A and I believe B. You and I are going to kind of agree on the test, the evidence, the data that will distinguish between A and B. And then if it turns out to be A, I've got to get over my cheap self and I'm going to fight tooth and nail and try to say why the experiment was wrong or whatever. We're going to continue to argue. But eventually, I'm going to realize that the evidence proved me wrong and you right, and then the edifice of science is going to go in your direction, not my direction. The thing that Strevens points out, and the thing that I thought was so smart about his book, he says, science is unnatural. Science is not what we want to do, right? Science is painful. And you've been in enough academic seminars. I've been in plenty. You've had your work and constructively, if things are going well, you've had your work torn to shreds. These things that you believe so deeply, this must be true. Look how brilliant I am. And your colleagues go, oh, Andy, you overlooked A, B, C, D, and E over here. Back to the drawing board. It hurts, but that's how we actually get smarter because we have this ground rule about how we're going to resolve all of our differences of opinion going forward. So science is slow, dogged, Collecting evidence is a drag a lot of the time. It's really time-consuming. Having your ideas shot down is no fun at all. But what science does that is brilliant is it says to us overconfident human beings, you're going to win. You're so smart. Your evidence is going to be right. Go collect the evidence. You're going to be right. And we overconfidently march off and go do all that. So the amazing thing that happens, the jujitsu that happens is that science takes our overconfidence and channels it exactly where it should be which is doing the hard work to gather evidence and then confidently getting up in front of your peers and presenting it and have them kick you in the teeth over and over again. It ain't fun, but that's what we signed up for. And what I think is going on at geek companies is they're importing that ground rule to make their decisions. That's why their batting average is higher. Because if you make the hippos follow the evidence like everybody else, Instead of allowing them to ignore the evidence and just use their big hippo gut, then your batting average is going to go up. And that's why these geeky companies are inherently very data intensive, very argumentative, and they try to be pretty egalitarian places because they're trying to take this thing that works so well for science and import it into the hard work of running a company. Yeah, I like to say, at least with startups, that the CEO job stands for chief experiment officer, right? And you're not really running a company, you're, you're running a, a, a lab. But th does this require, though, that we change how we think about status? Because we're all status-seeking organisms. Do we need to rethink of status so that it's not around dominance, but it's around something else? Can you make humility and an ability and willingness to admit that you're wrong into something that's high status. I mean, you talk about what happened at, at Microsoft and it's actually really remarkable. I, I don't know how you, you can enable such a dramatic change in such a short period of time, but that seemed to be a big part of it, changing how we, they thought about status. It's an astonishing story. And you're bringing up this again, a, a great, a very deep question. I'm not just flattering you. I, I love your questions related to who we are as a species. Because every social vertebrate, look at the mammals, look at the, the birds, they have a status hierarchy. It's very clear. Everybody in the group knows what the hierarchy is, and that hierarchy is based entirely on dominance. Can I mop the floor with you? doesn't matter if you're talking about a rooster or a chimpanzee or an elephant seal. There are these uh, dominance hierarchies. That's where the status comes from. We human beings have that. To think that we've evolved past that is just dead flat wrong. The evidence is overwhelming, right? What's interesting about us is that we have another kind of status. We have prestige. And prestige is not whether I can mop the floor with you. It's am I really good at a thing this group values? 
It could be making a canoe or going out and hunting or closing a deal or writing software. But we humans are exquisitely attuned to who's good at that. That person is prestigious and we accord that person a lot of status. Now, one other thing that could be going on, and I'm not sure the data is conclusive here, but one other thing that seems to be going on is that as people become more prestigious, they become more altruistic, more cooperative. They become menschier. They become nicer to deal with. The classic dominant, domineering boss is kind of an ego-fragile jerk, right? It's like what Bob Sutton talks about with the no-asshole rule. Some people ascend the org chart, and they're just assholes to everybody. Prestigious people tend to do less of that, and they tend to be coaches, and they want to spread the knowledge, and altruism helps with that. So I think one thing the geeks have latched onto is to try to decrease the dominant status in their organizations and increase prestige status. I think it's a big part of the reason that if you look at who's running, for example, the, the programming organization in a tech company, it's usually a very good programmer. It's somebody who has chops. It's somebody who has prestige. I know Google a little bit, and the two people running the um, big research organizations at Google are Dennis Hassabis, uh, who co-founded DeepMind, and Jeff Dean, who's such a legendarily good programmer. There are plenty of memes about him that you can go find on the internet. I don't think it's a coincidence that those are the people running the great big you know, computer science research shops inside Google. So the geeks are leaning toward prestige, I think, for very smart reasons. Dominance is still with us. It's not going to go away. But what you can do is have a norm inside the company, that domineering style of management. It's just not what we do here. And, you, and because norms are so strong for all human groups, if you have a norm of not being domineering, you're going to get a little bit less of that behavior than I think you would otherwise. Do you think that flows from perhaps a greater security so, you know, you don't have to hold on to your power tightly because you're not concerned as much with a, a loss of status, right? If you lose power, then you fall into the ditch. I mean, you know, in, in baboons, if you lose your alpha status, you'll find yourself out in, in the middle of nowhere <laughs> starving to death, right? Yeah. Whereas, I like this, because whereas if you're prestigious, what you, you're suddenly going to lose your ability to program, you're not going to become a good hunter anymore. Even if you get on in years and you can't go out and hunt, you can still teach people how to hunt. You can still pass on your knowledge, and therefore you're still a prestigious person. So I think it's probably true that prestige status is more durable and therefore you might be a little bit less nervous about it. Whereas if I know that I got up to VP level and I'm not really good at anything, I might be a really thin skinned jerk and try to keep people out. Yeah. I think that plays for me. Now you talk a lot about kind of farming for dissent, right? And how important it is to, to battle test your ideas. And you're at the Sloan School. And of course, Sloan, there's that famous story about Sloan, right? His board agreed with him on everything. And he said, All right, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna come back when you figure out how to disagree with me. Do, do you think, I mean, we need to get people comfortable with that early on. One of the big concerns I have in, in teaching MBA students is that we, we create an environment where you know, everything's kind of hunky-dory and everybody agrees with everybody. I find it very difficult to stimulate disagreement in the classroom. And so I'm really concerned that we're, we're pumping these people out into these geek companies and they're going to encounter some disagreement and they're, they're going to, they're going to, they won't know what to do about it. Right. Is there a disconnect between the, the incubation of these geeks and the, the maturation of them out in the world? Yes. I, I firmly believe that is a problem, but I'm also sensitive to the fact that you and I are middle-aged guys shaking our fingers at these kids today, which is just a thing that middle-aged guys do, and we got to be careful about. We should be humble about that. That said, I do agree with you. If we are not training, especially business people, any professionals, but if we're not training people about how to debate disagree, argue, and do it without being a jerk and without being, or without being completely thin-skinned about it, we're not doing people a service. We're doing them a real disservice, right? So I, I do think that there has been this increase in safetyism, especially on college campuses. And I think that is not serving young people well for a whole bunch of reasons. This is absolutely one of them. But you bring up this wonderful term, farming for dissent, which was coined by Reed Hastings at Netflix. And the backstory about that is, is wild. And I didn't really realize it until I read his book, No Rules Rules, which he co-wrote with Aaron Myers. And Hastings talks about Quickster. And Greg, you probably remember, Quickster was this disastrously bad idea 
that Hastings had in 2011. Oh, they lost like 80% of 80% of their stock price, right? Yeah, yeah. He shrank the market cap of the company by three quarters in less than in about half a year based on one idea. And the idea was Hastings knew that streaming was the future. He said, great, we have a, this company, Netflix, it's going to be a streaming company. It's going to be the future. And people are already like, that's far out. He was dead flat right about that. And then he said, but we have this legacy business of managing your DVD queue. Eh, we're going to spin that out into a separate company. It's going to be called Quickster. And you're going to have Quickster to manage your DVD queue. You have a Netflix account to manage your streaming. And then the world said, wait a minute, we got to manage two queues. We got to pay two subscription fees every month. My cost just went up. My hassle went up. This seems like a really bad idea. Inside the company, people were thinking to themselves, wait a minute, right now, we make a lot of money off people who don't even take advantage of the DVD part of it, right? But that's just money for us. And now we're going to make them confront that decision. They're not going to sign up for Quickster. We're going to lose all that money that's just lying around. This is a terrible idea. The problem was that nobody inside the company challenged him on it. And not because he was a, he's a super domineering guy, but he's a visionary. He's highly prestigious. He founded the dang company. He had been right time after time. And so his colleagues said, all right, Reed, we're going to go do Quickster. He announced it to the world and just catastrophe ensued. It was just a, it was like a bad season of Silicon Valley, right? They really did shrink the market cap of the company by 75%. Um, they got, they did a video about explaining their decision. It got parodied on Saturday Night Live. This is bad, right? He eventually pivoted. Okay, we're not doing Quickster. Quickster doesn't exist anymore. And then he looked around at his colleagues and he said, gang, why didn't you tell me what a bad idea this is? Because at that point, he had already worked for years trying to make Netflix the kind of culture that you and I have been talking about, trying to make it a culture of productive argumentation and debate and speaking truth to power and kind of egalitarianism. And Quickster showed him that he had not done enough. And what happened next is amazing to me because what didn't happen was Hastings fired all of his lieutenants because you're clearly not the right people for the job. He also didn't try primarily to work on himself. In other words, he didn't sign up for an exec ed course on strategic decision-making at Berkeley or at MIT. I don't think he did. What he did instead is say, we're just, we haven't nailed this norm of science, of argument, open argumentation based on evidence. We're not there yet. And so he said, we actually have to institute a formal policy. And he's not a fan of formal policies, but he said, we have to institute a formal policy at Netflix, where if you're contemplating something big, the, first of all, before you launch it, you have to farm for dissent. You have to write it up, hand it out to some number of your colleagues and say, what do you like or not like about this and get a numeric answer back from them. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they haven't had a quickster level fiasco since he started doing that. But what that tells me is how hard it is to get these geek norms in place. You have all kinds of opportunities to say, okay, this is too much work. It's not working. We're going to go back to the old playbook. But what I love about the geek leaders like Hastings is they're like, nope, I need to build a company where people will speak truth to me. I'm not there yet. How do I get there? And he tells in his book, and I repeat in the geek way, with quotation marks, with attribution, I want to be really clear about that. He, re he re tells a couple things that happened in the wake of Quickster, where he had finally built a company where his colleagues were willing to argue with him and challenge him. And then they were on their way to following these geek norms of openness and science. Well, another example, of course, is Facebook. And I remember in the early days of Facebook, I knew a lot of people worked there. I, I was very impressed with their culture. I thought it was one where they encouraged feedback. They, they rewarded during their performance evaluations. They would look at how much feedback did you give and how much did you take. But at the end of the day, I mean, it seemed like Mark Zuckerberg was not open to the kind of feedback that perhaps he should have with the move into the metaverse. Now, so how much of this is about culture and the folks who work for you? And how much of it is about the governance and the folks you work for? So, you know, when we look at Facebook, Zuckerberg can't get fired, essentially. And with, I think Travis Kalanick owned most of the shares. We work, right? I mean, none of the VCs insisted on board seats. With Theranos and FTX, the investors essentially waived any ability to supervise. D do you need to give formal power to folks who can check your overconfidence 
can it be done entirely through culture? Maybe not, because as you point out, it's clearest to me in the Facebook slash meta case where the board was effectively toothless. They could not gang up and fire Zuckerberg in any way because he had the majority of voting shares in the company from the jump, from by design, right? So he didn't have any governance, any institutional checks on his bad ideas, which to me means that when he succumbed to this classic, this unbelievably persistent, hard to eliminate human bias of overconfidence. When he became convinced that the metaverse was the online future in the face of the lousy uptake of all of their products and the fact that nobody really liked hanging out in the metaverse and that they were kind of a running joke and spending billions and billions of dollars, he kept that up for a long, long time because I believe of overconfidence and because he wasn't listening to the people who were telling him not to do it, and he didn't have to because of the governance structure of the company. It got so bad, apparently, that they Facebook had moved a lot from the early days when people got rewarded for speaking truth to power. I heard a story that they would set up these elaborate demos of some corner of the metaverse, and the abbreviation for them was MMH, Make Mark Happy. Okay, that, that company's not heading in a great direction. It could have been make Mao happy, right? Because remember, <laughs> hey, Mao, the, the output on the farms is higher than ever you know, when everybody's starving to death. There have been very few good totalitarian leaders in, in the business world or otherwise. My, my list is probably, as far as authoritarian leaders who did right by their country and their people, my list is probably Lee Kuan Yew at Singapore, and I think that's about it. But the flip side of that kind of autocracy is the veto-ocracy, where you have power that's so distributed that anybody can block the advancement of any kind of initiative. You just can't get anything done, right? These gigantic sclerotic companies. And one of the things that became sharper to me as I was researching, writing the book is first of all, how bad they are, just how pernicious they are. And there's this really lively reporting that was done about Microsoft in, during the first decade of this century and Nokia at about the same time, because it was pretty clear that these companies were heading in the wrong direction. There was really good reporting done. We got these vivid first person stories about what it felt like to work at these companies. These companies were still large. They were still making money. They're, the bad place they were in was not yet totally obviously clear, but when you read these accounts and you read about people trying to get their job done and just being thwarted at every step and how long everything took and how many people had the ability to hold it up for a while longer, or how hard it was or impossible it was to navigate through that, I felt myself suffocating, right? It's just, it felt terrible to even read about these poor people trying to do their job, trying to get something done in the world. And it drove home for me the fact that that bureaucracy, it, unless we're really mindful and careful about it, and unless we set norms and put in governance and get the incentives right, all of which are really hard to do, unless we do those things and do them well, man, we should just expect bureaucracy to appear and to get worse instead of better over time. I quote some great statistics that Gary Hamill and Michela Zanini came up with when they surveyed Harvard Business Review readers about how much bureaucracy they'd experience at their jobs. Holy cow, is it depressing stuff to read. But, but because we humans seek status, I think this is really deeply rooted. Because we seek status, we and one way to get status is to have veto powers, to become part of a vetoocracy. You have to have ideas go by you, to do that in hard ways and soft ways. And bureaucracy is a self-inflicted wound. It's a wound. It's a thing that we status-obsessed human beings create if we are allowed to. And the, the, the business geeks, to me, one of the things they've learned is how they have to fight against that all the time. Yeah, I love how you, you, you look to the sabotage manual, right? I thought that was a myth. I really did. I'd heard this legend about a sabotage manual that the OSS, the predecessor to the CIA, came up with, that they dropped out of airplanes in Nazi-occupied Europe to help citizens behind the lines do sabotage. This thing is real. It actually happened. And there's a chapter in it that's not about blowing up railways or anything. It's about how you do organizational sabotage. And it reads like the procedure manual of a 1990s company. 
It's all about how you've got to make sure everything goes through the proper channels and make sure that you, that decisions have to be thoroughly reviewed. And it's literally sabotage. It's brilliant. Yeah, I think that a lot of our universities have, I won't say anything bad, but I, I like to say that no university administrator has ever been fired for saying no. <laughs> like that's the, the safest route. Well, it's interesting about universities. I, I've been asked a couple of questions about this and I think it's fascinating because in some ways we're very geeky places. When it comes to the seminar room, we're very geeky places. That norm of science is being practiced. When you actually get clearance to do your research, and there can be a lot of hurdles with that, but when it comes time to do it, you have a fair amount of autonomy at how you're going to go conduct your research and analyze it and whatnot. I'm at MIT. I'm, I'm at the business school. Nobody from biology or chemical engineering or urban studies is, is involved in executing my research at all. Those are really geeky elements of being academic. But you bring up for other parts of the job, there's a ton of process and bureaucracy and committees and all kinds of stuff. Draining. Well, I like to think of there being a bureaucracy tax and a politics tax. And organizations should audit themselves and see what the tax rate is on their people. And obviously, the optimal tax rate is, not, is never zero, but it can be too high or it can be be too low depending on what's being done with the resources collected through those different things. Like I, I know at, at my business school, we have a lot of bureaucracy. And so to get around the bureaucracy, we create a couple of kind of loophole organizations, but they, they tend to be dominated by politics. So is our politics and bureaucracy kind of complements or, or substitutes? I think they're probably closer to complements. And I think they spring from two different aspects of what it means to be a, a weirdo human being, to be a member of this species. One is that we want status, and that's where bureaucracy comes from. I'm, I'm going to figure out a need to be involved in this work. That gives me status. I honestly believe that's the deepest reason for this stultifying bureaucracy that we come across. The CEO of most companies, if when they look at what the processes are actually like inside their company, they go, how did things get this bad? What is going on here? This is not anything close to what I want. But that's because the people in the organization create that kind of, that, that encroachment or that encumbrance all the time. You bring up politics, which is this other thing that characterizes every organization. One of the other things about us human beings is that we are so deeply tribal. Another word you use for it is coalitional. We form coalitions. The instant there's an us, there's a them. And we are going to be in conflict with the them. Tribalism, in addition to status quo bias and confirmation bias, probably the easiest bias to elicit. There are tons of experiments you can do to show how, how tribal we are, how we identify if you give half the attendees at a conference red shirts and the blue shirts randomly, and at the end of the conference, you ask for feedback, all the blue shirts will say, hey, the red shirts, they were idiots, don't invite them next year. And the red shirts will say the same thing about the blue shirts. We'll gin that up out of nothing. So I think the politics springs out of that element of what it is to be a human being. You're, there's an us and there's a them, and this is going to be antagonistic between us. You put those two together and it's not a great cocktail. The bureaucracy is probably, if anything, easier to fight than the fact that there are politics in turf. I, I wish we could snap our fingers and make it go away, but I don't think we can. All we can do is try to channel it and get it pointed in the right direction. You brought up Microsoft, and you and I are both amazed at what Satya Nadella has been able to accomplish since he took over in 2014. I think it's the biggest value creation story I, I've seen in, in the corporate universe, maybe even better than when Jobs came back to Apple. So I had the chance to interview Nadella and ask him how he pulled this off. It was amazing. One of the things he said, which I underestimated at first, was he said, when I came in, he came into this intensely politicized, bureaucracy-laden, turf-laden kind of company. He said, one of the things I kept stressing in all of my talks was that we are one Microsoft. There's one of us. And we're here because we want to build technology that make people's lives better and help them accomplish what they want to accomplish. And the more I listened to him talking, I'm like, oh, that's brilliant, right? That is just that rhetoric from the top is brilliant. There is one of us. We are the tribe. We are the coalition. Now, our competitors out there in the tech space, that's the them. Let's go beat up on them. Let's go be antagonistic toward them. But here inside, we are one big tribe. And man, I, I, he was able to succeed to, to a surprising extent with that. It's a brilliant strategy. Yeah, I think Ben Flyberg talks about this with uh, Heathrow, where they had all these different companies and contractors and subcontractors working on Heathrow's Terminal 5. And the, the leader said, okay, we're all working, we're going to act as if we're all working for the same company, right? And you have to 
check your cat badges at the door, right? And you got to get the hard incentives right to, to enable that, right? If you say that and then compensate people in a dumb way, you're just going to get more coalitional behavior. But if you get the incentives and then get the rhetoric and get the norm, then the tribalism, I think, becomes your friend instead of your enemy. You talk about making culture explicit. One way to do that is with these statements of purpose, right? Defining principles and so forth. We at Berkeley Haas, we actually have these defining principles that we articulated more than 10 years ago. But you talk about Arthur Anderson and, you know, they had some too, and they look pretty good. <laughs> so how do you make sure that's something more than window dressing? Do, do you need to have some kind of formal process in place where people are talking about them and reminding each other about them? At Arthur Anderson, it was kind of like the Russian constitution. Remember the Soviet constitution with freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and all that? You bring up what happened at Anderson. And there's this amazing book written called Final Accounting, written by a very brave woman named Barbara Faye Toffler, who was a professional ethicist. And she was hired into Arthur Anderson to be their first professional ethicist and to spin up a line of business about corporate ethics. She was hired at a time when Anderson was becoming the sleaziest company in modern memory. Some of your listeners probably don't remember. Arthur Anderson was an auditor and they were the most prominent auditor in the States, maybe in the world. And they were like the sheriff. They're auditing, yeah, yeah, this is where things started to go horribly wrong. They were auditing the most of the biggest, many of the biggest companies in America, and they were the sheriff. They kept the companies honest. They looked at their books and said, this is a true story about the company. And that company, they had a sterling reputation for decades. It's almost impossible to believe, but the company had a sterling reputation. Their auditing partners were very high status, very well-paid, very prestigious people, and then things started to go horribly wrong. And I spent some time talking in the book about all the reasons things went horribly wrong. But and I don't want to recap all of them. By the time Toffler showed up, this had become a deeply sleazy, unethical, they got chased by the feds eventually, a, um, organization where they were just taking all the, the, every dime they could out of their clients, regardless of any value delivered. Toffler tells a story where she billed out one portion of a project at 75K, and the partner just looked at her and said, you make that 150. And then here's the part that Toffler is brave enough to admit. She did. And then she wrote a book about it. So this, this is amazing bravery on her part, I think. But as you point out, at the end, when Anderson was circling the drain, when the feds were coming in, the, the company was just about to go out of business effectively. They published their annual report and they published their corporate values. And they were all about ethics and one Anderson and the stewardship that we, and just this nonsense, completely divorced from the reality of the company. And it, it's way too common. There's pretty good research that shows for most organizations, if you ask the people, the things that are on the wall, the things that are in the value statement that are in the annual report bear little to no relationship to the reality on the ground. Yuck. That's depressing. Now you bring up the great question. What do you do about it? I have a, a friend and a colleague who worked at Amazon for a while. And he said he, he loved working at Amazon. Well, not a perfect company, not a perfect culture at all. But he said, one reason I loved working there was that we lived those principles all the time. And if there was a debate about what should we do here, someone would get out the Amazon leadership principles and say, okay, number seven here is that we got a bias for action. And we're sitting around talking about this too much. We need to do something. I'm, I'm making that up. But he would say it was routine inside the company for somebody to refer to one of the principles as a way to, to settle the issue. And then they'd have a debate about that. The principles were living things. They were norms inside the organization, as opposed to meaningless words on a wall. Now, when I started doing business education and I learned about concepts like lean and agile and design thinking, they, they seem so intuitive and obvious, but, but I think that's only because I was a Montessori kid. And when I saw it in, in the book at the beginning, you, you were talking about uh, Montessori as an approach to education. It's really a, an, an approach to, to life, really. And to me, it's actually astonishing that such a small percentage of people actually get Montessori education. I went through the same thing you did when I went from Montessori to public school in fourth grade. And I went to a very good school, one of the best public schools in the country, but I was still uh, amazed and astonished. And I was like, what are we doing here? This makes no sense. <laughs> and I thought I could do a better job of, of running this classroom when I was 10 years old. Really? Wait, so did you identify with my pain there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know that my sister got to go through sixth grade, but why isn't all of education informed by those insights? I don't know, man. I think the status quo bias is really strong. And 
we have a tendency to overbuild things. We have a tendency to bureaucratize things. We have a tendency to inflict things on people lower on the status hierarchy than we are, i.e. small children. I think all those things come in. It's super frustrating to me. As in the introduction to the book, I identify the patron saint of geeks. And for me, it's not Nikola Tesla. It's not Thomas Edison. It's not Elon Musk. It's Maria Montessori because she was an absolute geek. She looked at this very important problem. How should we educate young people? And she came up with these wacky answers, wacky by her time, a century ago in Italy, let alone a hundred years later, they're still wacky. And she said, look, very young children, what they want to do, if we let them do their thing, what they want to do is learn. That's what a little kid is designed to do. And if we let them do their thing, if we create these labs that are full of subtly educational toys to play with, not overt, and if we just let them go run around in these classrooms, they're not going to run around. They're not going to start wars. It's not going to get Lord of the Flies. They're going to sit around and play with these things, and they're going to learn as a result. And she was right. And it, both Larry and Sergey at Google went to Montessori. Jeff Bezos was a Montessori kid. His mom remembers that when it was time for something else to happen, his teachers would have to pick him up and reorient him because he was so dialed into what he was doing. And Montessori's insight was, first of all, that's how kids actually learn. Second of all, we have overbuilt primary education. We've inflicted all this hierarchy and status. And now for the next 45 minutes, we're doing math. And then comes history, just this nonsense kind of structure. And we do it for a bunch of reasons. One of them is, and I found this terrifying quote from one of the main inspirations for this industrial style of education. And this guy was explicit. He said, look, the goal here is to drive the free will out of little children. That's the last thing we want them to have. The goal is to drive out their free will so they'll be obedient citizens for the society that we're trying to create for the rest of their lives. This is terrifying, right? So Montessori said, no, no, that's actually not what we should do. I, I think Montessori kids are probably very fine citizens. And she said, let's not overbuild this thing called education. We need some level of structure and hierarchy and all that stuff, but let's figure out what the minimum level is. To me, the business geeks have taken her ideas and run with them in a lot of ways. They've created places that give people more autonomy, more responsibility. And a big part of the way they've done that is by trying not to overbuild the corporation. What's the smallest amount of structure, hierarchy, governance, process, planning, all these things that we need? We need some. We got that. But what's the simplest thing that could possibly work here? I think that's fantastic. And I, I hope like crazy that it spreads. I think, And the reason I'm confident that it will spread is good old-fashioned competition. The geeks have built a better mousetrap for doing this thing called running and growing a company. And if the incumbents don't get it, the geeks will make themselves at home in their industry and start to dominate it. I, I, I firmly believe that. Last question. I mean, what insights can we draw from that that would help us to shape business and engineering education? Both, both in terms of the, the way we organize the education and the, the subject matter. There are very few courses at business schools on the design of organizational culture. <laughs> Certainly none in, in, in engineering schools. You quoted Clay Christensen and you said that managers, they love theory, they love learning. So do we need to add that into our curriculum? And then do we need to change the way students learn to make it more Montessori-like. Especially the latter. Because I, I do think that hopefully these ideas from cultural evolution and, and other weird disciplines are going to make it into business education because I think they give us real levers to work with. One of the things that I'm excited about doing now, now that the book is finally out in the world is thinking about the pedagogy. And in particular, what would it be a geeky approach to this kind of pedagogy, to this kind of education? And the thing that I'm vaguely envisioning right now looks not very, as little as possible, like a classic business school class. You know, you've got your homework, you come in, to, you do a lecture, you do a discussion a couple times a week, there might be an exam at the end. You know the drill. We've been doing it for at least a century. How can we shake this up? The, the most humbling experience I've had recently, and there are a few candidates for that, the most humbling one was when I tried to take a course at MIT that deserves its legendary status called How to Make Almost Anything. It started by this uh, wonderful mad scientist named Neil Gershenfeld. And the course is what it says in the title. In one semester, you learn how to make almost anything. You learn how to use a 3D printer and a laser cutter and a milling machine, and you learn how to program embedded devices, and you cannot believe the density of the syllabus, right? 
And I've been hearing about it forever. And I know Neil. So during the pandemic, in the first year of the pandemic, I said, hey, Neil, life is grind, ground to a halt. Can I take your course? He said, yeah, sure. He's super gracious. And I said, I'm just going to, I want to just sit around and audit it. And he gave me this pitying look. He goes, no, pal. That's not how you learn anything. That's how you think you've learned something. You're going to take the course. You're going to actually go make something every week. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll take the course. And the old line about an MIT education is that it's a drink from a fire hose. This was a drink from a fire hose because every week you're expected to make something. And in the lecture, Neil gives this incredibly rapid fire series of demos. Here's how I do this. Here's how I do this. And you're like, huh? And they're like, okay, go to the lab and go make something. So this week, you're going to learn how to do CAD, 3D CAD modeling. This week, you're going to learn to use a, a laser cutter. This week, you're going to do a 3D printer. Then comes the milling machine. You're like, sweet heavens, this is coming at me kind of fast to the extent that <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I have excuses, which I'm not going to bore you with. I couldn't keep up. I, I was just, the fire hose was drowning me. And I eventually had to go to Neil and say, hey, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't want to take up any space. This has been amazing. But <laughs> I tapped out. Uh, but most of the students in the course, they're younger and smarter than me, they didn't tap out. And in one semester from a standing start, they learned how to make almost anything. And I think there are so many lessons there. One of them is that if you, this is an iterative course and it was cumulative because every week you kind of relied on what you'd done for all the previous weeks and then you added on top of it. So you iterated quickly and you had tons of models to learn from. All the previous projects were in a course library. There were TAs, there were your fellow students. It was this amazing learning experience. And I'm like, wait a minute. I think that's the path forward for pedagogy. And so when I think about how I want to teach the geek way, I want to be a lot more like how to make almost anything and a lot less like the, the kind of classic B-school teaching that I've been doing. Wow, that sounds great. Yeah. Andy, I'm going to um, probably include this book, uh, Geek Way, in my organizational design class this spring. So thanks for putting it out there. Great chatting with you. Don't also forget Machine Platform Crowd. Second Machine Age, all the other wonderful books. Let's chat again sometime soon. And I'll, I'll try to write another one as quickly as possible. You and I can keep talking about it. Greg, thank you for this. It's been a blast. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. 